0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hi, Crossroads family, it's Brenda Baker. Oh my gosh, I have missed you all so much, and I cannot wait till we can get back together again. Today I'm reading the scripture from John 21, 15 through 19. Let's get started. Then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, feed my sheep. I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and you went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not wanna go. Now Jesus said this to indicate clearly by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And after he said this, Jesus told Peter, follow me.
1: Well, hey everybody, we are in week three of our series on the presence of God. I'm calling it alive because we learned over Easter that where the presence of God is, it changes our present. And the first week we looked at Mary and how the presence of God turned her grief into joy. Last week we saw week one of Peter, and we saw how it took his want for independence into dependence in all areas of his life on God's presence. And today we're going to keep talking about Peter and John 21. Before we get into it, though, there's a really interesting theme today on failure, mistakes, and regret. And I did some research this week on just the kind of regret we share as a people. There's a a website called Happify, and it's dedicated to helping people build skills for happiness. They say that 90% of people say they have major regrets. The other 10% are just ignorant to their regrets that they probably should have. It says that regret, and I thought this was really interesting, regret is the second most frequently mentioned emotion after love. It's just, it's big and it's weighty. They had a couple stats in there on modern regrets. They said one in every four homeowners have buyer's remorse or buyer's regrets. They say 25% of people regret sharing selfies. That number should be way higher. And it actually says that 31% of people regret their tattoos, although they probably would never say that to you. Inc. uh, is a website that I frequent, and they had a piece on a uh, woman named Bronnie Ware, and she wrote something called The Regrets of the Dying. She's a palliative care nurse, which means you care for people that are really ill that are passing away. And she said over her years as a palliative care nurse, she asked her people that she was caring for, what do you regret? And, And in her piece, she talks about five different themes that kept popping up about the regrets that people shared. They were, one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And the last one she saw again and again was, I wish that I'd let myself be happier. I think regret, like love, is a weighty shared emotion. And today, we move from Peter's independence into his, his I'm guessing, biggest regret. Because we pick up John 21 and verse 15. And he just got done bringing in a catch of fish because of Jesus. They sit down to have a meal together. And what we see is Peter is confronted with the weight of his regret. It's a really personal moment that he's going to have with Jesus. And we're going to dive into what comes out of it and what I think Jesus wanted to show Peter in that moment. But before we get into that, at CBC each week, we believe that God speaks through his word to his people. And we believe that as we listen to the word of God taught in in its various forms, that our job isn't to be critics, but our job is to come alongside of the text and ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit teaching me today? And so each week we take some time and we build in a time of prayer that you might ask this morning that the Holy Spirit reveal the true character of God to you as we read the text. So take a few seconds now and say a prayer with your friends, family, or just by yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to shape you this morning as it speaks into your spirit. Okay, so our text today begins in verse 15, but to set the stage a bit, you got to go back to verse 9. So in chapter 21, verse 9, they just get to the shore, the disciples and all the fish. And it says in verse 9, when they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal fire with the fish already placed on it and bread. And you might just skim past that really quickly and say, oh, cool, fire. But there's a lot packaged in that sentence. In the book of John, we see two different places where a fire is specified and two different places where fire is actually charcoal fire. It's this one here, and it's the night when Peter betrayed Jesus. Because here's the deal. There is study after study that tell us that, that our senses, our sights, and our smells especially, sounds, and um, kind of what we can touch— take us back to moments that we lived before. They have a powerful ability to not only make us remember, but transplant us to those places, good, bad, or indifferent. It was Thursday morning this week, and I woke up about 6 o'clock before the wife and the kid to do some work. And we are out of espresso in my house right now. Um, We're going to get some more really quickly. So I resorted to French press, which is not normally what we do. And, And I walk outside, and it's 54 degrees outside, and it reminded me of something every year. And um, back when I was a youth pastor here, I would take kids to Mexico. And the only time during the year that it would be outside and be a little chilly and I'd drink French press was in the mornings, every day when I was in Mexico, sleeping on a cot in the desert. I'd get up and I'd make French press for the other leaders before they got up, and I'd sip hot coffee in a cool place before the chaos of the day began. And so every time now, I drink French press and it's a little cold outside. Thursday morning, I couldn't help but literally be transported back to those times in Mexico with our leaders in slow mornings before the chaos of life ensued. Because smells and tastes and, you know, and what we touch takes us back to places in our life we've lived before. That's exactly why John includes this note here. He's saying it's a charcoal fire because Peter sitting next to that charcoal fire absolutely took him back to a place that he'd lived before. and It wasn't necessarily his best day. In Matthew, it talks about the time when when Peter denied Jesus, and it also does in Luke. And in Luke 22, it says it like this. This is verse 61 and 62. It says, then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And how he said to him, before a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. It says, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. The moment that Peter was remembering, you probably know the story, is when Jesus got arrested and Peter said, I'm never going to deny you. And then he did, three times. And then he saw Jesus and he lived in the weight of what he'd done. And it says he wept bitterly. It's a painful moment to Peter, for Peter to relive. And that's exactly what's happening on the beach right then and there. And you got to understand the weight of this moment. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. Jesus wasn't just a mentor Jesus was Peter's rabbi and his lord he thought Jesus was about to change the world in ways that he understood and wanted he thought that Jesus was the answer to all his problems he thought Jesus was the fulfillment of thousands of years of hopes for his nation he thought Jesus was and then Jesus got arrested and died he betrayed his Messiah, his Lord, not just his friend. He left everything and walked with Jesus for three years. And in three moments, he walked it all back. And he couldn't live with himself. He wept bitterly. It's a really big moment for Peter. And so that's the scene that's being set when this conversation between Jesus and Peter happens. And we'll pick it up in verse 15. It says, Then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there's really two reasons from this text that, that we understand the weight of the remorse, the regret that that Peter felt. We feel the weight of his mistake. One is that Peter's failure was public. This is in front of the other disciples, and when he denied Jesus three times, it was outside of the court of the high priest. It was in front of strangers and friends. It was right when Jesus got arrested, and so when he denied Jesus, it was in a public place. And make no mistake about it, when we fail publicly, oftentimes we fall harder and it feels like we fall farther. Peter failed publicly. And two, I think what makes it really difficult for Peter is is Peter was a confident man. He was a really confident man. And when you fall and you're really confident, sometimes that blow is pretty difficult to absorb. I was talking to a friend of mine on Wednesday this week. Um, and it was the, I believe it was the, the, the 29th of April was Wednesday. And they were convinced, 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 convinced that, April, that it was the last day of April. And I said, hey, we got one more day to go. And they say, Charlie, we do not have one more day to go. They even broke out the knuckle thing. You know what I'm talking about? They went January, February, March, and then April. See, April's down here. And I said, hey, yeah, that's great. April's got 30 days, except it's the 29th today. They looked at their phone. And they said, oh, my gosh. And they realized it. And they had a phrase I'd never heard but I loved. They said, often wrong, never in doubt. I love that phrase. Mostly because it hits really close to home. It reminded me of a, a time with my wife and some friends. We were at a wedding in Wisconsin. We are in downtown Madison. And I always act like I know what I'm doing and where I'm going, especially when directions are involved. So we're trying to walk to this restaurant. And I said, it's this way. In the group and my wife said, is it? I said, for sure. We walk, we walk, we walk. I didn't let anybody else know that I... Really was doubting myself about a mile into the walk, and I finally look at my phone and I realize that not only did I walk kind of in the wrong direction, it was the exact wrong direction. Like I could not, I could not have walked in any more of a wrong direction to the point where I couldn't make up for it and write it off. I couldn't go down a side street and just like take a, another angle to where we're supposed to go. I had to stop turn around, and we all had to walk the 15 minutes back, the same steps we took to get where we had just left, because I am one that is often wrong and very rarely in doubt. I love this phrase. This is Peter. And you can see it. Let me read you some text from Matthew 26 when Jesus talks about the betrayal. It says this, Jesus said in verse 31 to them, to his disciples, this night you all will fall away because of me, for it's written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said to Jesus, If they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to Peter, I tell you the truth, on this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to them, Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter, the weight of this moment is made bigger because one, it was public, and two, He was confident. So when Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? The these he's referring to is literally the other disciples. He's saying, you made a claim that you love me more than everybody else. And what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the overconfidence of Peter, saying, where are you at now? Humility is difficult sometimes. And when we fall and make mistakes and when we have regrets, we're reminded of our frailty. We're reminded of our shortcomings. And you clearly see in our text that Peter grew from this because he says right after that question, yes, Lord, you know I love you. So he doesn't say more than these. He doesn't say I'm in the middle of the pack. He doesn't say I'm the bottom three, but I'm up and coming. He just says you know that I love you. He takes the comparison out of the game. So he's growing as a person through this experience like we all do, hopefully through our mistakes but one thing that's really interesting in this text is what's going to happen next is really important. And you know it's important for a couple reasons. I think the fire is one. I think the history of Peter and Jesus is one. But it says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, and there's only a handful of times we see Jesus use that name for Peter, the full name for Peter. We see it at um, when he was called to follow Jesus. We see it at the... Uh, the moment when, when Peter said, you are Jesus, the son of God, it was a big moment. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he fell asleep. It's kind of like growing up, if your mom ever used your full name, you know, the, my mom could say, Charlie, take out the trash. Sure, I'll get to it. Charlie, take out the trash. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I promise. Charles Robert Ridenour. I stopped what I was doing. I took out the trash at that point because things were about to get real, you know. Jesus says, Simon Peter, son of John, he's saying, this moment is one you want to listen to. Because it's a big one. And he goes on. Jesus said to Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs." Okay, a couple things about our text. Um, one, we have the same question three times. Some of you are familiar with this text and some of you aren't. We have the same question three times and they're almost word for word the same. But there's a little different. So let me speak to the differences and let's take the three questions, kind of the ideas behind them as one. Uh, first of all, you see four sets of synonyms in our text. Love, no, feed, and sheep. So love is seen in, a, in the Greek. It's a couple different words. There's several Greek words used for love. And in this exchange, John uses a couple different types. Uh, you see no, he uses both the Greek words for no in this text. Two synonyms for lamb. You see literally the word lamb and then the word goat. And for feed, you see feed and you see the word tend in the three questions. And there's been a lot written about this. There's been a lot written, especially on the love example. There's been a lot written about, well, what it meant when Jesus said, I love you like God loves you. And Peter responds with a different word "phileo," than the agape word that Jesus used. When Peter says, I love you, but I can't really get to that level of love for you. But I think as we've studied this text more, and, and most commentators now are going to say that John really, when he talks about this text and when he uses synonyms meant the exact same thing, even when he uses the word love. And we, we see that in his text. Because what you have to do when you're expositing the Scripture or interpreting it is say, well, what does the writer mean by it? How does he use these words? And, and sometimes it can change from writer to writer in smaller contexts. So, for example, this week somebody dropped off a rocking chair at CBC because we're going to make a family area in one of the rooms. And uh, it actually it used to be the rocking chair of Demarcus Ware. Really cool, Right. So if I were to say to you that this rocking chair used to belong to a cowboy, and you know me, you're going to understand that I mean the Dallas kind that doesn't win Super Bowls anymore, all right? And if I go, like, to Prosper, Texas, and a dude that listens to country music, wears cowboy boots, has a hat, and some kind of gun rack, says this used to belong to a cowboy, I'm not thinking the kind that don't win Super Bowls. I'm thinking the kind that live in Wyoming and can do the manly things that I missed out on in life, you know? And so context matters. So let me give you a couple examples of of, of John using words for love interchangeably. In John 3.35, he says, the father loves the son has placed all things under his authority. That's the word agape there. And skip forward to John 5. He says, for the father loves the son and shows him everything he does. That's the word phileo there, the other one used in our text. And I say that to say this. We have clear evidence that John uses synonyms interchangeably um, just because it's his style of writing. And so when we see these different synonyms, I don't think it's pointing to any nuance that we need to extrapolate on. I just think John's trying to make the same point by using different words. It's his style of writing. And there's several other examples I can give on why I think it means the same thing. If you have questions, you can send them to sermonquestions at crossroadsbible.org. It's a really good conversation, but it's a pretty nuanced one that I would love to have with anybody. Um, but when John uses these different synonyms, he means the same thing. So we see this this question three different times, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, so feed my sheep or tend my lambs or take care of our people. So let's break down those constructs real quick. And we're going to be pretty brief. So the first thing he says, Jesus says to Peter, is, do you love me? And here's the deal. I don't think he, he didn't know that Peter loved him. I don't think that Peter just saw Jesus in last week's sermon. He saw Jesus. He leapt out of the boat and just started swimming toward Jesus. He was so excited we all knew, everyone knew that Peter loved Jesus. I think the question Jesus is asking is, how much do you love me? And not in a way that says, prove it to me, but in a way that we've talked about often at CBC. Love is really the reordering of your priorities. It's the rightly ordering of your priorities to live in God's fullness of life. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that when you denied me, your priority wasn't loving me first and foremost. It was loving other things. And I think Jesus is saying, do you love me? Am I your top good, your best priority? Because the way we love things shows value. What we love has greater influence on our life. And what we care for first, second, and third changes how we live. There's study after study that points to kids being healthier if they're not the center of the family, but the parents are. So I'd say it like this my kid's gonna turn out better if I love my wife well than if I sacrifice loving my wife for loving my kid, right? So they'd say that in that situation, the best good that my kid can see is a healthy marriage between me and my wife. It's the rightly ordering of our loves. I think Jesus is asking Peter about the order of his loves. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 22, when they ask him what the greatest commandment is, he says, The first commandment between all the other goods that you can do. The best good, the rightly ordered thing, the top love is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so Jesus goes to Peter and says, hey, I know you feel really badly about betraying me, and I know that regret lives with you, but let's ask you right about the thing that you feel the worst about. Do you, am I your best good? Because there was a moment that we're all remembering right now where it wasn't. He meets him in the middle of his pain and asks the question that he's probably running from, to be honest with you. Because we often run from regrets more than embracing them because they hurt. And so he asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds by saying, you know I do. That word know there, we see it three different times under text three or four, and you see both Greek words for know there. And knowing in most other languages has two different words for it in German and French and Spanish and Greek and ours not so much but there's a difference between I know because I can see and observe and I know because I intrinsically know I know because I I have the intellect to know and I know because I have the experience of knowing and I think in the middle of this Peter's asking for both he says do you love me And, and Peter says you know I do and I think it bounces back and forth for Peter because he's saying to Jesus it might not have looked like it but you really know I do right you you know I love you, even though you can't see the evidences of it. And, and you know I love you because, you know, i do anything for you. And so Jesus says, I know. So this is how you show your love for me. You feed my sheep. You tend to my lambs. And so Peter is appealing to what Jesus knows intrinsically. But Jesus is saying... This is how I'll know, objectively, you take care of the people around you. And over and over again in the Bible, what we see is this common theme that if you love God, it always overflows into a love for others. Every single time. And that word sheep there, goats that you see in the text, or lambs, however your text translates it, that word there is one that's used throughout the Bible of God calling his people. From the popular one in Psalm 23, when he says that he makes us lie down by green pastures and the one that you can probably quote to when Jesus gets on the scene and he he says, I am like the good shepherd to you. You are my flock. You are my sheep. And so there's a lot of pastoral, if you will, love built up in this way that Jesus is is calling Peter to action. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's asking Peter to love people like he loved people. Because Always, 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 knowing God, loving God overflows into loving others. That's why the second half of that greatest commandment thing in Matthew 22 starts with love God with everything you got and then love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things go together every time. And so he's calling Peter to love like God loves him, which is the job of a disciple, which is what Jesus came to do to show us the Father's love. John goes on to say in his first epistle in chapter 4, verse 21, and the commandment we have from him is this, that, we, um, that, is this, that one who loves God should love his fellow Christian too. And really what that did was I think it was a perspe- perspectival shift for Peter. So I think Peter was so thrown by Jesus getting arrested because what he thought Jesus was going to bring and come and do was a revolution like nobody would seen before where they take over militarily and they take over um, financially and they take over in terms of influence and authority and none of that happened because Jesus got arrested. And so in that moment, I think Peter was absolutely confronted with all of his expectations of what Jesus came to do. Henry Nouwen says it like this, The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. So when Jesus says, when Jesus says, love my people, tend to my sheep, I think what he's calling Peter to do is to take care of people like Jesus took care of people. He's challenging Peter's presuppositions and expectations that got him to denying Jesus in the first place. One commentator says it like this, Peter's actions had shown that he had not wanted a crucified Lord, but Jesus was crucified. How did Peter's devotion stand in light of this? Was he ready to love Jesus as he was and not as Peter wished him to be? And really what we see in the text is Peter coming at the other side, realizing the beauty of Jesus in a new way. And we know this moment was big because it shaped his philosophy of ministry going forward. No longer was Peter expecting Jesus to deliver all the land in the Middle East or give him all the authority and all the power. He finally saw that Jesus came to love people through acts of service and built influence through serving others. You see it so well, if you even go to Peter's epistle, his letter, his first epistle in in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He's teaching others how to do the job of following Jesus well. And he says, as your fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, and as one who shares in the glory that will be revealed, I urge the elders among you, give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you, exercising oversight not merely as a duty, but willingly under God's direction, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. What Jesus is doing in this brief interchange is he's reordering Peter's loves and reorienting Peter's view of what it means to follow Jesus, all while confronting probably his biggest regret. And so I think that's what the phrase means, but let's back up at the bigger picture. So this is asked three different times, just three different times. And and I think it's asked three different times for a couple of reasons. And the simple reason, the face value reason that's really good, is three times, three times Peter denied Jesus publicly. And so in the midst of the other disciples, I think... Three times, Jesus says, tell me that you love me. With each one that he says I love you, he's taking away the weight and the stronghold of his regret on Peter's life for denying his Lord and his Savior and his Master. I think people are hearing this. This is a moment of restoration. It's a beautiful moment of restoration. I think it reminds me of, I was um, doing some work at a church in Chicago when I was going to school up there. And it's the first time I'd seen like restoration in churches. They had a worship pastor... That, that made some mistakes, and he had to step down for a little while. And I was there one Sunday when they restored him to his position, and it was a huge celebration. And I guess I'd never seen that done in a church before. I thought that if you messed up, you were gone, you know. I didn't see the other side of the tunnel. And so I love the idea that, that with a public fall oftentimes comes a harder fall, but with a public um, restoration often comes a more joyous celebration. And so they reinstated their pastor, and it was a beautiful moment. I just sat there and said, "This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus." And so, one, I think he's taking away the weight of every time he denied him three times, three times. Two, it says this in verse 17. Jesus asked a third time, "Simon, son of John, do you love me?" And get this, it says Peter was distressed that Jesus asked a third time. He started to get aggravated and annoyed. And I, I don't think it was only because Jesus kept asking the same question, you know? I don't think it was a mom driving home a middle school kid from a carpool line, how's your day? How's your day? How was your day? I want a better answer. I, I don't think that's what was going on here. I think that what Jesus is trying to do is to get to the heart of Peter's woundedness. He's meeting him where he's at and he's saying, I, I see what you did, and I want to restore it. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies is Goodwill Hunting. Uh, I remember when and where I was when I saw that movie, and One of the best scenes, I think in film, but in that movie, is the main character goes to a counselor. And towards the end, the main character has been abused as a child. And he's holding on to some grief and he's holding on to some woundedness. And there's this moment when Robin Williams, who plays the counselor, just says, hey, it's not your fault, Will. And he says, I know. And he says, hey, it's not your fault, Will. And he says, I know. He say it's not your fault, Will. And then he starts getting angry. He says, I know. And he keeps asking the question. And as he asks it more and more, it seems like he's getting to the heart of why and in the heart of where the wounds really lied. And I think when Peter is being asked again and again and again by Jesus, do you love me? I think Jesus is trying to get to the heart of his woundedness. One commentator said the threefold questioning of Peter by Jesus concerning his love brought the disciple from a response of something like, of course, Considering the first question to a sense of grief with the third one. But Jesus would not let him go with offering an easy response. Instead, Jesus probed him until he opened the wounded heart of this would-be follower. I think what we see in the middle of our mistakes, when we carry the burden of regret, is so often the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. So often the hardest thing to move past is the sense of betrayal that we didn't live into who we thought we were or wanted to be. And we can't get away from that. That's a tough thing to live with. That's a big weight that traps us down. One playwright is actually a 5th uh, B.C. century playwright. um, And Aeschylus is the, he's said to be the father of tragedy, which is like, wow, kind of name. I love what he says about, But this kind of feeling, he says, even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. That none of us want to be in those moments. We don't like sitting in those places where we have to deal with the emotions and the remorse and the regret that we feel. But in those moments, we see the depth of God's grace. It's a beautiful story about Peter because it shows us that our life as we follow Christ isn't defined by our mistakes or our regrets. They're defined by God's grace. (laughs) See, Peter's biggest problem, I think, isn't that he denied Jesus. He was forgiven for that. Peter's biggest problem was that he ran away and wept. Peter's biggest problem was that he couldn't get over what he did. And Jesus meets him in the middle of that moment and says, let me show you what restoration is. Looks like. Let me show you the depth of my grace that you maybe didn't think was big enough for you. Bonhoeffer is a writer and he says it like this God loves human beings, God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, this is for the ground that uh, this is the ground for unfathomable love. Romans puts it like this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Christianity is one of the only worldviews and religions that says you are not defined by what you do. Think about that. I don't have to sit here and give you example after example of mistakes that we make or weight that you're carrying or remorse that you can't shake because you're afraid that it's all you're going to be and it's going to limit who you are. And what Jesus says to Peter here is the message I need to hear over and over again, that our mistakes don't define who we are because Jesus comes and says, my grace is bigger than your regrets. Grace means that my activity doesn't define my identity. As Kierkegaard says, we've used this quote before, it's one of my favorites. God creates out of nothing. Wonderful you say, yes to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Richard Hayes in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, says, be who you now are. And this is the beauty of our passage. This is the beauty of Peter's story. This is the beauty of the presence of God right in the middle of the regret and the doubt that we don't want to let anybody else into is the presence of God in the middle of our failures transforms our mistakes into just markers of his faithfulness, of his goodness, and of his unending love and grace for his followers. That you are not, that I am not defined by the mistakes I've made is the narrative of Jesus. That we are more because Jesus is more. <laughs> and so you know what happens when we run head first and hard into the grace of God? Is the grace of God creates in us as we see God's faithfulness, more faithfulness for Jesus in our lives. And you see it as the story ends in verse Um, 18 and 19. It says, I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around and went wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you don't want to go. Now Jesus said this to indicate clearly by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And he said this, Jesus told, after he said this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. So it ends by Jesus really laying out (laughs) the kind of faithfulness that Peter was going to follow Jesus with after this, because he died and he got crucified, many say upside down, um, because of his love for Jesus. He didn't run away the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time. What we see here is when Jesus meets Peter in the middle of his failures, regrets, and mistakes, what we see is that when we find the overwhelmingly good grace of God, it creates in us a deeply profound faithfulness in a God who would love us with that kind of depth and grace and capacity we find is the beauty of what grace does in our lives and so as we read the story what we see is it's one of hope it's one of faithfulness and i can't help getting away from that moment on the beach in verse nine when it says when they got to the beach they saw a charcoal fire ready and i got to thinking this week that fire didn't just appear jesus made it jesus made the fire He set the stage for this to happen. He pursued Peter and he knew exactly the moment that Peter was going to relive when he said, come and eat by this charcoal fire. He knew exactly what Peter was going to know and think and feel. He knew exactly what was going to well up in him, all these emotions and regrets. And the point of Jesus doing that was to show Peter that he's not defined by his regrets anymore. He takes a moment of pain for Peter and says, I'm going to transform this into a moment where you see my goodness. So he made a charcoal fire on the beach. Jesus takes what, in no doubt, is Peter's worst day and, and tells him that that day doesn't define the rest of your days. Come and follow. There's hope. That's what the presence of God does. Because regret is intense, mistakes are hard, and we all have them, we all live with them every day. And when we follow Jesus and we allow his presence into even the scariest, darkest, don't want anybody to see moments of our life, and we find in the light of the grace of God that God loves us anyway, what we see is his beauty, the power to transform, and to take a moment that didn't have hope and bring hope. to Take a moment that was hopeless and make it hopeful. to Take those places that oftentimes signified pain and say, you know what? God's love is bigger. And so if anything else today, as you... Think through those moments in your life. Know that God's grace is bigger than your mistakes. Know that the presence of Jesus in the life of his followers turned your mistakes into markers that God has been faithful to you. And may that, may that grow in you faithfulness towards the God who loves well. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for who you are and just for your unending, your unending faithfulness. I'm thankful that you meet us in the middle of our mistakes and the wounds that come from that. I'm thankful that your grace and love is greater than anything I've done or will do. I'm thankful that you can take the wounds that we have and bring hope in the middle of them. So as we think about this text and as we think about the life of Peter, might it be one that, that moves us towards hope and not shame? <laughs> might it be a gospel of restoration and not guilt? might we take joy that Jesus is with us, that he's alive, and that his presence transforms our present? And we pray these things in his name. Amen. As we go this morning, I'm going to do a blessing for you guys like we do every week. My blessing today is I'm just going to read Romans 8, 37 to 39 over you. It goes like this. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, we have a panel discussion right beneath this. Join us in that. Ask good questions. Talk about how God has been faithful to you and remember the overwhelming goodness of his grace. Have a great day.